Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I speak with Roland Geyer, renowned industrial ecologist and author of upcoming book, The Business of Less. Now, Roland has done a lot over his decades of professorship and research, and one of his big accolades is his groundbreaking research around plastics. Him and his team are behind the research that found the total amount of plastic ever produced. And I'm not exaggerating there. He is literally the guy behind the study that found how much plastic has ever been produced and how much will be produced by 2050 based on current trends. And so in the episode, Roland and I will discuss What inspired his initial foray into environmental research? What captivated his attention in the field of plastics specifically? And in what ways his findings from this research have impacted public sentiment and policy alike? We'll then segue into conversation about his book, The Business of Less. Well, we'll do a couple things. One, we'll talk about these two big fallacies of corporate sustainability that highlight the jump-off point of this book. And then two, after discussing these two business myths, we'll then segue into the pathway forward. What specific accessible steps can businesses and households make alike that'll set us on a path towards what he's dubbed as net green? And finally, we'll end on an optimistic note. Right now that we've established the urgency of the problem, his research, what he covers in the book, we'll talk about what he's most optimistic about, right? What technological breakthroughs, societal changes, legislation on the horizon that makes him most hopeful about the future. Y'all, this is a conversation you do not want to miss. And so without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Roland Geyer, renowned industrial ecologist and author of book, the business of less. Roland, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to put face to name. Thank you for bearing with me as we sorted out the, the technical difficulties. Well, we got through them, so here we are. So, Roland, I'd like to start off every interview with just a quick background about yourself. What is the 60-second spark notes on who Roland Geyer is. 60 seconds and ticking. All right. I hail from Germany, which you can probably hear by the accent, but I've been a California transplant for the last 17 years. I studied physics in Berlin, but then decided to make environmental sustainability my not just my passion, but also my profession. And so I ended up doing a PhD in the UK after some research in France and then was hired straight out of the PhD program to join the faculty here at the Brain School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And yeah, that's where I've been for the last 17 years. Both my kids uh, were born here. They're Californians, which is really strange, and both teenagers now, relentlessly moving forward. So, 
Roland, we have a lot of ground to cover, and I want to make sure we carve out a decent portion for a book you have coming out. But I think before we dive into the book, it's important to establish context. Why should the listeners say what this guy is saying is worth listening to? And I know a lot about what you've done, some of your research, but I think what would be helpful is to point to a piece of work or research that you've led that you believe has had outsized impact, right? Either materialized in public sentiment change, it's been caught on the headlights of policymakers. So is there a, a single kind of source of work or research you've done that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, proud of it certainly had outsized impact for sure. I, I am proud of it, but I'm proud also of a lot of research that didn't have this outsized impact. But certainly my work on plastics had what I think is outsized impact. And of course, you always work in a team, almost always these days in research. So it wasn't me alone. It was a whole team effort, but I had the good fortune to team up with a group of amazing scientists to get our heads around uh, the issue of plastic in the oceans. Um, so we call it plastic marine debris. And at that time, 2010, 11, no one even knew how much there was in the ocean or where it was or what its composition was. And our research changed that. And so we quantified, we came up with what I think is really the first estimate of uh, how much plastic enters the ocean in a given year. Our year was 2010. It was an um, outlandishly large number, which I think didn't just shock us, but everyone else. It was picked up by the media. And then we followed it up by a publication where we just quantified all plastic humankind has ever made and what it's used for and what it what its fate is on the end and we found that the vast majority of plastic is still somewhere on the planet it's now exceeded 10 billion metric tons which is of an unfathomable amount of synthetic man-made material and i do think those two publications have really put plastic on on the plastic pollution on the map and have started or helped start a, a movement to tackle the issue of plastic in the environment, so plastic as a pollutant. So that was pretty amazing to see that happen. It, it, it's funny. I'm a big John Oliver fan, and there probably wasn't a day in the near future after I saw you on his show that I'd say, oh, I'd be talking to this guy a few months later. But just a quick takeaway here, just to, to reiterate to the listeners, we're talking to someone who has literally found a way to calculate the total amount and location of all plastic on earth. And so if you think about all of the companies that reference these statistics that look to drive parts of their corporate sustainability practices, which we'll get into a little bit later, policy, it has to start with someone and something. And you are a stalwart. You are a groundbreaker in this field. What I'd like to to better understand before we get into the book is your initial foray into the field, because people could spend decades trying to solve this problem. 
even just coming up with answers to some of these bigger questions. And how does someone initially get captivated by this problem area? How did this happen? Like, like many good things, I think there was a fair amount of chance and happenstance involved. And I think if you're in a good current, then you let you take where it takes you. As I said, I like when I was studying physics in Berlin, uh, I was volunteering at Greenpeace in the evenings. And so I finally decided that, you know what, I would love to do this for a living, to not just do that as a pastime, trying to undo the damage that I maybe do in my during my day job, and decided to change careers and become an, a sustainability professional. And it was quite difficult at the time in Germany. They're very in Germany. They're very big on formal qualifications. So wherever I went to uh, for an interview, uh, they said, "But you're a physicist." And I said, "Yeah, but I like <laughs> I can do this." In the end, I ended up in the UK at a Center for Environmental Strategies was called doing my PhD there because I found two wonderful professors that I really wanted to work with. And in order to finance my PhD, I applied for a a research position in parallel. And it happened to be about metals, studying metals. So the flow of metals in the UK, but then also globally. So I got into this world of what we call industrial ecology, where we study material and energy flows through the economy. So that just happened. And I really liked it. But like most of my colleagues, I was studying metals at the time, copper, steel, aluminum. And at some point in the, so would say early 2000s, I suddenly realized that no one was studying plastics and that was strange and I wanted to look into it. So I just started to making some inquiries, look up production statistics and suddenly realized that we actually make more plastic and use more plastic every year than pretty much all the metals combined with the exception of steel. So just the sheer quantity was took me aback. So I thought, okay, I want to dig deeper into that. And that was mid 2000. And that's when I started digging into the production statistics and combining it with, you know, all available data sets. And yeah, so I'd say 10 years later, 2010, I was ready to you know, really put things together, synthesize the different data sources. And, and it's like a giant, putting together a giant puzzle only that you actually have to find the puzzle pieces first. So it's egg hunt plus giant puzzle put together. (laughs) It's a lot of fun, but it can also get quite, you need stamina and accept a certain amount of tedium. It truly is amazing. So now I'd like to, to parlay everything we just discussed into the core objective of this book you have coming out. So you have a book coming out called The Business of Less, the role of companies and households on a planet in peril. And the interesting thing about this book is twofold. One is you set up two overarching fallacies, these myths that are native to uh, corporate sustainability practices over the last few decades. That's right. But then there's also a look forward. It's, hey, let's acknowledge this and let's create some tactical, accessible pathway forward. So let's start with the former. Can you just briefly describe what are these two fallacies or myths of corporate sustainability? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, and I'm glad we're getting to talk about the way forward because I know in good hands is supposed to be upbeat and solution oriented. So I was mm-hmm. actually a little bit apprehensive. Oh no, I don't want to be the, the wet blanket here in, in oh, your no. podcast. But yes, you're absolutely right. It, I, it took me, to be honest, Peter, it took the, the better part of 20 years to work up the courage to finally say, you know what? I, I don't believe those two like central tenets of what I call now the corporate sustainability gospel. And so tenet number one is frequently called eco-efficiency. And eco-efficiency is essentially just um, environmental impact per product or environmental impact per dollar GDP. So it's environmental impact per unit, economic unit of output. And the eco-efficiency fallacy is that all that businesses have to do is focus on bringing down the impact per product. So Patagonia, which we all love as a forward-thinking, environmentally caring company. So they're they're in the same boat like all the others. They're very focused on bringing down the environmental impact per fleece or per pants but at the same time they're also growing five to ten percent every year and the data just shows that all these efficiency improvements have been consistently outgrown by just the increase of total stuff we make every year and that is the problem maybe we're bringing down environmental impact per fleece or per ton of steel or per kilogram of plastic But at the same time, we just keep making more and more every year. So these improvements, these eco-efficiency success stories basically get completely wiped out by our apparent addiction to more stuff year over year. So that's number one. That's, you know, the false promise, I would say, of eco-efficiency. And everyone wanted to believe it. And so did I. And but it's the data just is very clear that is it has not worked and it and we tried it as you said for basically three decades since the rio uh, earth summit in rio and it it's been the guiding principle for corporate sustainability and hasn't worked the other one is frequently called and that is basically the idea that um all businesses have to do to pursue environmental impact reduction or environmental sustainability is focus on finding opportunities that either reduce cost or increase revenue or increase profit in some way. So it gives us the hope that we can have our cake, we can have our environmental cake, but the economic cake too. And also, you know, basically concluded that this is it. We tried it for 30 years and has it has not worked. One problem being that, of course, a, a big economic driver is to increase your revenue. That's what behind it. And that's the reason why our eco-efficiency efforts are doomed to fail. Because at the same time, every company, even the ones that truly care about environmental performance, they at the same time, they're feeling this driver to increase their output year over year. So that's a fallacy of that, of that win-win idea. Mm-hmm. So you got my wheels turning because I, I, <laughs> I have to come out clean here. So in addition to In Good Hands... I also run a games business. I, I make card games. 
cool. Personally, I feel I'm almost a walking hypocrite, right? Where one of my loves, right, is creating these games. And by default, they come with us some kind of wide spectrum of costs to the world. And but the night, I guess the, the thing that makes me feel quasi okay is that I know these are forever products. You buy a monopoly, you keep it forever, but that does not ignore the sunk costs. And especially if you're making many volumes of this, right? right? So I, this is now, I think a great opportunity to segue to the pathways right. because me included, along with all of the other people who tune into right. this, are probably inclined to follow pathways if they make sense, if they're accessible. So let's segue there. What is this path to net green that you've coined? Right. Actually, first, can we define what you mean by net green? And then maybe we can bullet point exactly yeah. what some of these pathways look like. Yes, I think that's a great idea. So this concept, and this is not to be confused with net zero, which is being used in terms of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions everywhere. So it's a very different thing. It predates that. And it, with net green, I'm trying to create the alternative to eco-efficiency, where I'm basically saying eco-efficiency is doomed to fail because it just looks as impact per output but it doesn't guarantee what we really need is total impact reduction. We need to reduce the total amount of greenhouse gases. We need to reduce the total amount of land we're using, all these environmental pressures. So net green is basically a, a simple tool to help you think through that, whether you are actually reducing total impact. And, and the way to do it is that you just say you create a, a new product. So Creating a new product will also have environmental impacts, right? Un unless you're sort of creating a tree planting business or something, then maybe you're already avoiding impact by your business alone. But typically, like even if you produce solar panels, they are not without impact. Making solar panels has environmental impact. So you keep that in mind, but then you also think about all the environmental impacts that are actually avoided because of your product or your business practices or whatever it is, your household spending, whatever it is we're looking at. And the important thing for this activity or this product to be net green is that the avoided impacts need to be significantly larger than the new incurred impacts. So mm -hmm. if the solar panel manufacturer can be relatively certain that is or her solar panels are going to decrease our reliance on fossil fuels, right? Then the impact of making and using solar panels is weighed against the reduction in fossil fuel production and use. And like, if that reduction is large enough, then it's virtually guaranteed that the solar panels are going to net green, uh, mm -hmm. to be net green. The only the only thing that that I'm really trying to say here is that. Just because you produce or you're using solar panels does not guarantee impact reduction. Really what causes the impact reduction is that once you say a household, once you have your solar panels on the roof, that actually your utility bill goes down, mm -hmm. right? Because you could just say, oh, now I have solar panels. Now I don't have to, I can double my electricity consumption. Mm -hmm. But that's not how this works because then the eco-efficiency fallacy is, is, is going to 
you know, come to bite you. I really appreciate this framework. What I'm wondering is do the four pollution prevention principles that you've outlined, mm, yeah. how do those tie in to this North Star? Right. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's just um, list them. So I, I give them sort of little short monikers to make it really easy. Like, first of all, pollution prevention is, again, was popularized during the Earth Summit in, in the early 90s. And the idea is, wouldn't it be nice if we could just avoid pollution from happening in the first place rather than accepting it from happening and then having to control it or remediate it even. So that's the idea of pollution prevention. Avoid, just reduce pollution in the first place. And there are essentially, in the classic literature, there are three ways to do that. And I call them, again, different and less. And so again, is basically reuse and recy recycling when we uh, use materials over and reuse when we use entire products or components. Again, um, these days, lots of people call it the circular economy. That was sort of a, a rebrand, successful rebranding effort from the Allen MacArthur Foundation, McKinsey, but it's essentially reuse and recycling. And again, you know, now we can maybe go back to plastic, right? The, or materials in general, the whole point of recycling materials, the only point from an environmental point of view is uh, that it allows us to use less virgin or primary material. So again, if you think about it, collecting all the used plastic from the blue bins and then washing it and then remelting it, cleaning it up and recycling it, this all has environmental impacts. It's not impact-free. However, if we use this recycled plastic instead of virgin plastic, Right, then we get enormous impact reductions because we're making less virgin plastic. So overall, plastic recycling would be net green. And that, so that's the idea. With reuse, it could be even more pronounced, right? If we find ways to really reuse entire products like beverage containers rather than mm -hmm. having to melt them down and just reuse the material or have reusable coffee mugs in, instead of single-use um, mm -hmm. containers. These things are all potentially net green, like very net green. But what we must never forget is that the environmental benefits come from not from reducing our reliance on virgin products, new products, virgin materials. And it's not the same thing. It could actually be that you know, really cheap recycled material leads to us just using more materials overall. And there's actually some evidence. I have some PhD students doing some research in that area, and there is actually some empirical evidence that recycling actually leads to an increase in total material consumption. And that, of course, is not, again, eco-efficiency fallacy. So that is not what we want. Now, um, when it comes to different, that's Pollution prevention principle two is basically the idea is let's just use something else, right? So the idea would be, okay, plastic is a real problem. Let's just use a different material. And there, of course, there are two things. So first of all, if we just switch back to paper, of course, paper also has environmental impact. So we need to compare the environmental profiles of plastic and paper. That can get very complicated. But if we find something that truly has a lower environmental profile, and there are great examples um, like renewable energy compared to fossil-based energy, actually, it turns out electromobility has 
definitely a lower environmental profile, fossil fuel-based mobility, like in internal combustion vehicles. So plant-based protein, definitely much lower environmental profile than um, animal-based protein. But again, we just need to keep in mind that the whole, the environmental benefits don't come from suddenly growing incredible amounts of peas and, and legumes, but to actually raise and eat animals. So it's about like, it's, I'm, I'm trying to help everyone to focus on what really matters, which is, which is not so much what we always think of as the solution, right? The Beyond Burger or the Tesla, but it's really about not do, you know, no longer doing these impactful stuff. So if you eat the Beyond Burger on top of all your steak and don't reduce your red meat consumption, the burger, the Beyond Burger, sorry, I don't mean to <laughs> uh, be, be could be any, yeah. any kind of plant burger but the like it's not about eating plant-based burgers it's about not eating animal Real protein burger. yeah yeah so that's the idea and then finally of course the the third principle is what i call less so it could be like less input per output that's eco-efficiency again we tried that and we might have like that there are problems with that and then of course the easiest but somehow apparently i feel like the most challenging one is just less output mm -hmm. so if we just rather than trying to recycle this difficult to recycle plastic it is difficult to recycle if we just said okay let's just use less plastic let's just use less everything and find a way to have a good life with just less all around that would be by far the easiest way to reduce our footprint on this planet. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it seems to be the hardest. And of course, mm -hmm. for bis businesses are, are so hardwired today to sell stuff that I think it's, that is basically why I wrote the book. And that's why it's called The Business of Less, because I, I want to really encourage businesses because i think like businesses need to be part of the solution obviously businesses how we make move and everything basically our products our food and also where we get our meaning from right most people work in some sort of business and so business is here to stay but how can business really become part of the solution mm -hmm. and that is the idea of the business of less and is there a way to sell solutions you know to to provide for the households for everyone but reducing environmental impact is there a way to sell less environmental impact mm -hmm. to build a business model that is not based on having to sell more stuff every year uh, i'm wondering this is a it's a captivating path forward and i do foresee of the four pollution principles some are much easier to adopt based on the industry genre. But I'm curious, is there a particular example, an anecdote in the book that you can point to where you saw someone go from zero to one in a meaningful way? We've talked about fossil fuel-based vehicles to EVs, I, right? That's a, that is a obvious winner. Yeah. And you can go down the list. I mean, like, uh, lawn equipment. That's like another big winner. Not even just right. like from the impact. It's just like more right. pleasant that it's not loud in your neighborhood. Um, but is there another anecdote that you feel 
exemplifies someone pursuing without compromising the business at large? I'm just, I'm, let's see whether this is answering your question. I, so the fourth principle that we haven't even talked about yet is what I call labor, not materials. And I'm just going to sort of use that now mm-hmm. as an idea because you're absolutely right. It seems like a lot easier to build a business model coming up with a reusable container that potentially could displace lots of single-use containers, like this could really work. Or to exactly to come up just with with an electric alternative to something that before that fossil fuel powered leaf blowers and lawn mowers and you know whatnot. So this whole idea of electrifying everything, I think is wonderful that we're doing this. And obviously renewable electricity is a no-brainer and plant-based food. We have so much evidence that that this is uh, a, a less impactful way to to feed ourselves but the less that was you know the challenge like how do you come up with a business model that sort of work so one example that i use in the book and then i come to labor not materials so quickly the one example that i use to actually exemplify net green is car sharing so I love the idea, the case study. I, I teach it every year to my students because everyone assumes that the sharing economy is green. It's just a given because it's sharing. But then I challenge my students and say, okay, let's just assume someone adopts a car sharing model, but drives the exact same amount of miles every year in a very similar vehicle. So the only difference is he doesn't own or she or they uh, don't own the vehicle anymore, but it's a shared vehicle. Isn't the impact identical? And my students scratch their heads. It's like, ah, wait a second. And so it turns out what was what makes car sharing green is that it actually encourages people to drive less. And there, there's actually evidence. You know, there were uh, researchers at Berkeley that um, did a giant survey of car sharing users, and they could clearly show that a joining car sharing makes people households drive less and that is basically where the greenness of car sharing comes from is it's a business it's a business of less it basically encourages and enables people to get all their mobility and access needs let's say done with less miles on the road which I think is fantastic. So the other idea with the less was that because I do a lot of work now, again, one of those lucky coincidences in the apparel space. And so my idea was that, and it's it applies to everything, not just apparel, but one way to reduce your environmental impact immediately is not to keep looking for this miracle green material to make your fleeces out of or to make your any old product out of, but to actually shift from selling stuff to selling labor. So to basically you know, have in to to have a business model that is built around value creation based on people's time and skill. So that would actually be you know where the value and the revenue comes from. So you're not creating revenue by just selling stuff, but you're creating value and revenue because your people's time and skill. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And in the apparel industry, it's actually quite striking because once I looked into it, of course, I I found out and most of the audience will know that in the wages in the apparel supply chain, shockingly low, just increasing wages along the entire 
um, apparel supply chain to living what they call a, a livable wage level. We would have to increase wages basically fourfold is what literature says. And of course, it would make your fleece or your sweater or your hoodie, would it would make it more expensive. But you would buy a more expensive hoodie with a much reduced environmental footprint, right? Because most of your dollars would actually pay for people's time and not for growing cotton or make synthetic fibers. And like households could actually really effectively reduce their environmental footprint by overall just shifting their spending from stuff to what I call late people's time. Like maybe your card game. I would assume that most of the value added in your card game is is your time and your ideas that go into it. It's not, you know, like the value is not in the paper of the cards. The value is in the creativity that went into creating this game. It's interesting. I, I have this idea graveyard, all these things that I'd love to revisit when I maybe at one point have more time to, to hmm. explore. And this, I, I think that there's something deeply interested around the notion of slow fashion. Mm-hmm. It feels like the large portion of apparel providers today are not only just currently producing, but compelled and designed to output as many SKUs as possible on a very tight cadence, H&M, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. So it feels like we're at a point where you could do exactly what you just said. You lean into this notion of slow, slow your horses. You wrap it into this idea of slowing down and appreciating the moment. But also the messaging is the last t-shirt you'll ever need, the last hoodie you'll ever need because you pay more for labor. The average quality per output is higher. And again, this is, I don't want to, I don't want to get into the eco-efficiency fallacy, but my presumption, and I don't know if you've done research here, is that maybe you are inclined to purchase less if you are investing more per single piece of apparel, right? If you spent $200 on a hoodie, probably less inclined to buy other pieces of apparel in a given period of time. Plus, because the average quality is higher, you're also, you're not trashing it earlier. It has more, not just intrinsic value to you, but it it is just by definition um, going to last longer. So I don't know, is, do you think that there is a opportunity to launch a brand that leans into slow without- without hitting those two fallacies. I I absolutely, I think actually we're, it sounds like we're kindred souls in that respect because that is my fantasy too. Because I, I want to be very clear, like I'm not, what's the word? I, I love products. I love things. What I don't like is badly made things that are not just offensive because they are not nice products, but they're also exploiting people across the world and they're exploiting the environment. And so my vision, which I think is that same vision, is that like, just like of the good life with environmental kind of planetary boundaries, products that that are well-made and I can feel good about owning them. And yes, they will be more expensive, but yeah, I think that that is exactly the point. So I feel good about owning 
that piece of apparel or that piece of furniture or musical instrument or whatever it is, because I feel like everyone who touched it in the supply chain got a fair deal. And I feel like the environment was respected all along the supply chain. And yes, it will be more expensive, which is how I can reduce my environmental impact because I, I, I buy this one nice product rather than 10. And then I really care about it and it's very meaningful and I'll look after it. And yeah, that that is absolutely where where, where this is going. And I th- that it's I'm not a person that says, oh, we can't have things anymore. We have to all be frugal and, and nibble on, on our wrinkle, organic carrot. But I like, I love life. I like nice things. I, I just feel like we're not surrounding ourselves by nice things anymore. We're surrounding ourselves with junk and we're junking the environment while mm-hmm. we're doing it. And that sort of just doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple more things I like to hit on before the book ends. I pulled this from an interview of yours and it's, we, we glossed over it already, but I'd like to hear exactly how you came to this observation. So you were talking about plastic straw bands and you said there is the potential for such bands to make people think their work is done. Straws aren't even the most likely, aren't even the most likely thing to end up in the ocean which makes the band more symbolic. The worst case scenario would be for plastic fatigue to set in with people essentially throwing in the proverbial polyester towel on the fight (laughs) against plastics. And so plastic fatigue, I've actually never heard of this before, but can you just demystify what you meant by this and whether or not you feel like this is materializing right now? in some respect. I have to admit that I think that was the writer that probably came up with this, but (laughs) I think what we were talking about is that I think there's always a risk. A movement just runs its course, runs out of steam. And I think that's what what we were talking about, the, the writer and I, that, you know, at some point, everyone, even those that truly care about the environmental impact of our addiction to plastic, that they're just get tired and and they don't see any real improvement and and movement and so that that would be that fatigue the resignation and i i do remember one one other thing where we talked about the straw ban and and me saying it's it's mostly symbolic because it's just such a small piece of the plastic pie so to speak is that if i, I think the the worst thing that could happen is that now people think okay, we banned straw, plastic straws, we're done. But I think the fact that it's symbolic could actually be something positive where people are inspired and say, you know what, I don't even notice we don't have plastic straws anymore, right? We really, some people do need straws, obviously, but lots of us don't. So what else do I not need? So that it and inspires people to declutter their lives in a way. And I think, again, that sort of brings us back to re- your idea of just slowing everything down and, and really thinking about the fundamentals and the basics and, and what really matters mm-hmm. and, and what is just sort of white noise, the stuff equivalent of white noise. Right? It's just distractions. Mm-hmm. Um. So a couple more questions here. Uh, The through line at In Good Hands here is to get people pumped about the future, right? 
At this point, every week, there's a new headline that scares the living shit out of the average Jill and Joe. And so that's what we're doing here is we bring on people that are working on really hard problems and making a living by doing it. So what I'd love to do before we hit the bookends here is we understand the urgency of the problem. Is there anything you can point to? Right, a, a recent breakthrough, a societal change, some type of policy that is on the the brink of being greenlit at, at the highest level. Is there something that you can point to that you want to leave with our listeners that gets us just to feel a little bit more optimistic about the future? There are a few things. Uh, there are definitely a few things. It's just how long it'll take to you know really take off. But obviously. This week, the big COP26 conference of parties, 26 in Glasgow, has started. And obviously, this is dominating, as it should. This is this is dominating the news. And at the same time, I'm just teaching an energy class to my students. And this class, I, I started teaching this class about, I want to say, 15 years ago. I basically had to throw away half my slide decks because of how th- fast things have changed. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I I now firmly believe that we actually could transform our energy systems to an entirely fossil-free one, to the point that actually six months ago, I I wrote an op-ed for The Guardian where I said, let's just ban fossil fuels. We actually have the technologies, believe it or not. Wind and solar power is officially the cheapest electricity. Even natural gas can't compete. And that's without subsidies. We Storage is getting sto- uh, cheaper and cheaper. Uh, lithium-ion battery, the cost of lithium-ion batteries has decreased by 90% in just the last 10 years. It's phenomenal. In 15 years ago, I actually decided that electric battery electric vehicles were a better solution than fuel cell vehicles. Everyone thought I was crazy. Two years later, the Tesla Roadster comes along, right, in 2008. And now we're in the middle of an electromobility revolution. So things are really, the pace is accelerating. And I, I can just see it when I look at my old slide decks of my energy classes. It's really things are changing. So I think all we have to do is demand even an increase in that in that pace, in that transformation, and hold those that are at the big levers of decision-making to hold those accountable. And I think we could really, we could stem that energy transformation that we so urgently need. I really Mm -hmm. believe it. Mm -hmm. It's great to hear also that your professor, if there's a student listening here, that they're not just copy-paste. I have to. It would be (laughs) nice if I could just reuse the, the, the slide deck, but with this energy class, the pace of change has been rather phenomenal. It's I'm, a great I'm, I'm glad. It's yeah. a good problem to have indeed. Uh, while I have you here, this is the last question around 15 years. So one of my favorite excerpts from a different interview, you were talking about the book, which has been in the work for many years. And the interviewer was asking, why do this? Why write the book? And you had this to say. I feel like I almost have an obligation to think hard about what the most meaningful thing I can do at this point is. And right, you've had you've worked now for over 15 years as a professor, breakthrough research. And then you say, 
after 15 years of doing this for a living, I'm finally brave enough to really go out and say, it's a behavioral and social problem we need to solve, not a technological one. And so let's just tie it full circle with the book. You have a bunch of potential readers here that are thinking about why is this book something I need to pick up and read? And so if we tie this kind of last expert excerpt and this together, someone picks up this book. What is the one thing that you hope they leave with after reading it? The one thing that many things, but you say the one thing. So I'll say the one thing. I think, yes, that change is possible and that it's the change is us. And it's, it's not that magic technological bullet that will some genius is going to invent and then every problems will be solved. I, as I said, I did study physics. I did my PhD at an engineering department. So I think I'm qualified to really look, give technologies a hard look and judge them on, on based on their capabilities and their environmental performance. And I've come to the conclusion we have all the technologies we need. There'll be getting better and that's wonderful but we have them all we don't need any silver bullets to solve the the environmental problems that we're facing so the change is us uh, that's and so if we turn that into a mantra i think that I, I really hope that this book will help generate that you know let's call it a self-fulfilling prophecy Right, where the reader together with me can say, we can do this. And it's the, the change it's us. It's not just waiting for some technological miracle. Roland, it has been such a pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you for your time. Oh, and thanks so much for having me on. More importantly, thank you for a lifetime of you have been humble throughout this entire conversation. To anyone listening, I'm going to link Roland's bio in the show notes and also a link to his book, The Business of Less. And you'll see just how much Roland has been really just short of words, but really he is, it's been truly an honor to get to speak with you. So Roland, thank you again. Best of luck with the book launch. And maybe in some time in the future, we can collaborate on a little slow your horses fashion brand or apparel brand would, of sorts. I would love that. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll see a, a podcast in our future. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Roland. Hey, I appreciate you very much. And we'll have to do a round two maybe sometime next year. Oh, that would be delightful. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. It was great. I loved our conversation, every bit of it. Thank you, Roland. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.